Hey, it's Greg Brady. Thanks for checking out the Toronto Today podcast. We do appreciate it. When you miss some of the show and can't hear it live, this is where you can find us. I want to talk about vaccination off-ramps. Toronto's doing an amazing job getting people vaccinated. Campaigns here, campaigns there. No one's going to be critical of that. Of course not. But what happens when we get to a certain point? And what if we can't get to that 90% for months on end? That's what the data is telling us. It's going to take that long. We're inching up percent by percent, but those percents are taking a few weeks at a time to get there, to get people fully vaccinated. So what's our off-ramp and where do we go? All important questions. We'll talk to Bruce Arthur and our weekly visit from the Toronto Star and as well Sarah Singh on the show, uh, deputy leader of the NDP, weighing in on the week that has been in provincial politics and what she expects from Premier Doug Ford still asking for an apology. And I ask her, schools going better than anyone expected, including the NDP? You'll want to hear that answer. That and our Fantastic Four segment, so much more. It's all here in the Toronto Today podcast. Um, Today, later on, um, the Ontario government will unveil a new plan. They say they want to help get immigrants working in the fields where they have expertise. Now, is this something that was coming this week? Or is this by design based on some of the premier's comments? Labor Minister Monty McNaughton has been very front and center uh, these last couple weeks. Um, Let's get a perception from the deputy leader for the NDP about that, about the controversy and about where we're going in the weeks to come. She is Sarah Singh and joins me now on Toronto Today on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Sarah, it's great to have you on. Thank you for getting up early. I don't know. Is this early for you? Is it early? Thanks so much, Greg. It is not early, um, (laughs) but good morning to everyone. Monday, uh, we have uh, we've had a lot of, uh, you know, parameters and a lot of uh, wide variance, as you might understand, of opinion about what the premier said and what he was trying to say. When you first heard it, what were your thoughts? Any more reflection on it um, a good 72 hours later? You know, I think for most people, when they heard those comments, you know, I come from a family, uh, my parents were immigrants to this country. Um, I think it was very disappointing to hear the way that uh, the premier framed his remarks um, and, you know, the suggestion that people come here and don't contribute to this country or they come here to, you know, collect the dole, as he said. Um, You know, those types of remarks really, I think, fuel division in our communities. Um, You know, they're very xenophobic. as well. And, and, and some can also interpret them as racist, um, you know, depending on the view. And I think for a lot of people, it's disappointing to hear the premier of a province use language like that to frame uh, newcomers and immigrants in that capacity, I think, uh, really undermines what they contribute to this country and the sacrifices that many of them have made to come here and to become Canadians and contribute mm. here in the province of Ontario. I think a couple of things. I, I think I, I think there just isn't much middle ground now um, with how immigration has changed in, in 30, 40 years to where uh, you, you, we are, we accept refugees. We should from war torn countries, from incredibly difficult living circumstances. We do do that. We're one of the most benevolent countries on the planet about that. And that's something to take pride in. The other factor is, is that. Generally speaking, when we admit someone for immigration, Sarah, they they have a degree. They have a professional responsibility. They know where they're going, uh, what they're going to do and and what they're qualified to do and what their salary is going to be. You, you can't 
it, this isn't 30, 40 years ago where you could just come in and uh, go, what do I do next? Like most of these jobs are assigned, some of which and, and some of which we should fix is you should be doing a job that meets the education with which you you went after that job for. You shouldn't be qualified to work in one country to do one thing and then come here and not and and, and have to, you know, climb the ladder. But there's not a lot of middle ground there. And I, I just didn't see that in the premier's comments there. There's 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 not a lot of subtlety and nuance with what he said. No, absolutely. And you bring up such an important point. You know, so many are um, immigrating here and have credentials that are not recognized often, meaning that they're underpaid and underemployed um, because the system is set up in a way that doesn't recognize their, their credentials or, or it takes too long for them to have their credentials recognized here in, in Canada. And so for many of them, even 30, 40 years ago, well-educated immigrants, um, you know, coming to this country, wanting to contribute. We're talking about, you know, doctors, um, for example, um, driving taxi cabs because they, they couldn't get their credentials recognized. This is what we need to be talking about and fixing um, so that folks that are underemployed and underpaid can actually um, have have their, their qualifications recognized um, and be employed in fields that we need them to be. That was not part of the Premier's comments. And I think that's what's really troubling is that you know, the premier does come from a place of privilege, and I, I, I personally don't think he understands the struggles that, that immigrants um, and their families uh, experience uh, when they, they come to this country to build life and the sacrifices they make in doing that. And, uh, you know, I, I think that he should apologize and, and make it clear um, that he understands and, and, and is willing to work towards this. Some of the comments we heard even in the legislature really sort of paternalizing the situation and, and, and sort of you know framing it again as, you know, well, I've got friends that are immigrants. That's not the point. I think he completely misses what the issue is here around the comments and how to make things better for folks. Sarah Singh is our guest, NDP deputy, uh, deputy leader uh, and, of course, member of uh, parliament, um, provincial parliament for Brampton Centre on Toronto Today. I agree with what you said, because I think we all have a, an anecdotal story. There's always someone who knows someone who knows someone who's, yeah, uh, uh, abusing the system. And they could have lived here 70 years or they could have lived here seven months. But that's not like I don't think you can build to a stereotype. Some of the data that we utilize um, is, you know, eventually even for COVID is like, we're not stereotyping. We know, we know who COVID affects. We know who's safer than others based on comorbidities, age, et cetera, et cetera. With a scenario like this with immigration and employment. Yeah. Every, everybody's got a story of, uh, of abuse that they've heard of, or they know about anecdotally, but that's, that's this, you know, we got to be better than judging an entire, you know, group of people or a, you know, a city, a town, a street, we got to be our family and we got to be a little less stereotypical about it. No, absolutely. And I think, you know, this is it's also part of a bit of a, a dangerous pattern from the premier in terms of the assumptions, not following the data. Um, you know, not too long ago, I mean, he'd made some comments, but our, our colleague Saul Mamakwa, for example, uh, First Nations individual, a member, you know, of parliament and the fact that the premier thought he was skipping the queue uh, to get vaccinated. I mean, these types of um, these types of statements and comments that he makes with very little substance, um, you know, just I think demonstrates just the lack of leadership and the lack of thought sometimes that I think from the premier's perspective um, when he's uh, answering and responding to questions. Uh, it, it's really concerning. Um, and then to, you know, I, I think frame it again, like I've got friends that are immigrants and it's just it's shocking to hear these types of comments. And I think really disappointing for folks, um, you know, who are looking for, for better from the premier. Uh, 
I got a couple of hot button issues I want to hit you up on uh, before we go. One is uh, is the idea of mandating vaccines for all healthcare workers. We finally have seen the science table say, I, I you know, for one thing, I can't believe we're here. We've got we've got governors and uh, Democrat and Republican in the U.S. who did this months ago, months ago, mandating vaccines not just for long term care workers, which finally came, but all healthcare workers. Um, Doug Ford says he's worried about well, there could be a nurse shortage because nurses or or doctors don't want to get vaccinated. My anecdotal experience is it's just the opposite. Nurses and doctors don't want to work with unvaccinated colleagues and and they're and they're fried as it is from 20 months of this. How do you view it? Absolutely. I think, you know, when we connect with healthcare workers, um, they want to see their colleagues vaccinated. It, it, they understand that it's a, a safety issue for them as well as for the folks that they're treating, vulnerable patients. Um, and so, you know, I think that this is something that, like you said, uh, others have done. And, and again, here we are in the province of Ontario, uh, sort of lagging behind because of the Premier's um, lack of leadership on this issue. Um, you know, we do need to mandate uh, vaccines in long-term care and other healthcare sectors to protect those workers and to protect the vulnerable people that are accessing those services as well. One more education. Um, I would make the case uh, schools are going well. I would make the case schools are going better than predicted. I know we had even in Toronto, Sarah, we had the first high school closed last week. And to the credit of the Toronto Board of Health, I credit them when they do good things. They had that school back up and running, testing out in front after seven days. I think uh, the worst fears of parents and and even some non-parents have not come to fruition. Do we give the Minister of Education or the province credit for that? You know, I think uh, for a lot of schools, um, you know, th- we could have done a lot more to make them safer. Um, and while it's great that, uh, you know, we don't see a sort of worst case scenario playing out in our schools, um, there are still schools where, you know, there are 30 students or more crammed in classrooms um, that require better ventilation. Um, and so, you know, I think that more could have been done to help keep our students safer uh, and to avoid any schools from closing down, to be frank. Um, but I think, and I, I commend uh, you know, school boards and educators um, for acting quickly and for putting in place measures that they can to protect their students. Um, I think, you know, it's great that we have avoided the worst, um, but I I hope that we continue on that trend. But again, I think we could have done Mm. so much more to prep. There was so much chaos and confusion as we headed into September as well. Um, Things like that we could have avoided had uh, the minister, I think, just... um, you may have gotten ahead of this uh, a little bit more effectively and, and made the investments over the summer to make sure that our schools were going to be st- safe and stay open for students. That's fair. Well, one of our guests we have on pretty regularly, Ryan Imgren, has documented that uh, we need to be allowing teachers to be uh, wearing safer masks. So either KN95 masks or N95 masks. I know that's been a bit of an issue with boards. I- I've been critical of union leaders who said in the summer I'd, I'd put them on the radio and they'd say, well, are, are we going to mandate vaccines for education workers? And uh, and to me, they were a little slow on this. We talked to, obviously, uh, your colleague, Andrea Horvath, the same week, uh, the day after she said, no, you know, I've changed my mind on vaccine mandates. Could we all have moved the ball a little bit faster up the hill uh, in the summer to mandate vaccines and, and provide teachers with the proper PPE? 
I absolutely feel we could have. And, you know, I think it's something that, uh, you know, this, this was the second school year um, for, for students uh, through COVID. Um, many of the preparations that could have been made weren't. Um, I think we could have mandated vaccines. I know, for example, in, in the vaccine rollout, education workers were not prioritized mm-hmm. um, until later on. So things like that could have been done that would have sped up the process, I think, and, and perhaps kept our schools uh, open um, towards the end of the school year as well. Um, but I think mandatory vaccinations for, for all education workers um, will just help uh, ensure that, uh, you know, uh, the uh, folks that need those vaccines are getting them and that we're protecting our students and educators in the classroom as well. Sarah Singh, MPP for Brampton Centre. She's the deputy leader of the official opposition party, the Ontario NDP. It's great to have you on. I hope we get to chance to chat again soon. Have a great day. Thanks so much. Enjoy, enjoy the rest of the day as well. Take you care. bet I will. Sarah Singh, uh, MPP uh, from Brampton Centre. This story came up uh, over the weekend, started to see it sort of filter out and then see mainstream coverage of it. Um, let me set it up for you. There's uh, a community, South Lake, Texas, and uh, there's uh, so much tension, as you can imagine, with teachers, school boards, parents right now. But the top admin of a school district in South Lake, Texas, last week told teachers in a meeting, here's what we need. Now, we, we got to teach some history. We should know our history, right? Or we're doomed to repeat it sometimes. But let's give students books that cover, as it was described, opposing perspectives of the Holocaust. And you can imagine the reaction. And I know people want to roll their eyes and go, well, come on, it's Texas. But shouldn't Texas have standards? Shouldn't Texas teach history as it was? You can have different opinions and debate a lot of things about politics and history. This doesn't seem like a bridge to cross here, and it's uh, obviously got people flared up. It's got the emotion. It's it, it grabbed the emotion of the community, teachers as well, and uh, and I know it's gotten coverage up here. I want to bring on Mike Fagelman. He's executive director of Honest Reporting Canada, and he joins me now. Mike, thanks for the time. When you see a story like this, um, what's the initial emotional reaction? Then what's the practical solution to that reaction? It's troublesome, right? There's a lot you can debate about politics and history. This doesn't seem like one of them. Yeah, troublesome is, to put it lightly, it's appalling. It is fundamentally historical revisionism. Uh, when it comes down to it, there, there are no two sides to a genocide. This, this issue, it, it's, it's not up for debate. The massacre of six million Jews, it's, it's the most meticulously documented genocide of a people by both the perpetrators and by the victims in history. Uh, to cast it in, in any other light is is morally obtuse. I mean, uh, I don't know what what's the opposing perspective. Is it Mein Kampf? Yeah, uh, that's a place to start uh, with an opposing view. And what we saw in that reaction, and it's remarkable because, yeah, it's one thing to wonder about what we're kids are learning. We, we sit them down at our kitchen tables every night and say, was this talked about today? Was that talked about today? Um, this shouldn't be something that gets revealed at the kitchen table. And, and for parents who are really dialed in on their kids' education, that's great. They might sniff this out in advance. If they don't, you're not just getting bad information, you're getting hurtful and hateful information, and you don't even know it. Yeah, I mean, this this goes into how, unfortunately, we live in a world of uh, the reality of subjective facts instead of objectivity. And, uh, you know, the kind of angle of uh, an alternative facts kind of a scenario. And listen, I'm a parent. I can't imagine uh, that if, if my kids' educators were peddling this kind of misinformation, 
you know, th- they're digesting this. And, and what's dangerous about Holocaust denial and Holocaust distortion is it produces a breeding ground to fan the flames of hatred and, and to foment discord and anti-Semitism and fundamentally mm-hmm. to allow for another uh, a genocide of a people. It is incredibly dangerous and it is incredibly hateful. It's not just ignorant. How much has, I mean, the early days of the internet, are we seeing just a sea change where we thought this allows us to be educated? It allows us more information, but almost from the early days where we could correspond with each other, we'd look and say, well, there's going to be, you know, some nuts out there. There's going to be this conspiracy theory. There were conspiracy theories about about 9-11 and what happened that day. That was almost the first big internet conspiracy theory. But they've multiplied since then. It's almost been a house of cards. Once one happens and gets even legitimized by anybody, more come along. Were, were we in a safer place for information and history, Mike, before the World Wide Web, plain and simple? Fundamentally, we were. And there's no question about it. Uh, you know, back in yesteryear, the bigots of society were on the peripheries. You know, maybe they had access to a blog or their personal uh, publication that they would write. But now with with the uh, advent of social media, the proliferation of hate online is so toxic and has such viral propensity with with social media outlets, with built-in algorithms, which allow for this kind of content to to be peddled unfiltered um, without any kind of a pushback. Hate has become ubiquitous online. uh, And there there is little inclination and desire from the platforms themselves to restrain them. And our, our big concern as an organization and, and for the state of Israel, for the Jewish people, is fundamentally that, that what is the kind of discourse, the hateful and, and bigoted discourse that happens online, that it could transcend into real world violence. We've seen it. You know, we have the, the um, three-year anniversary of the Tree of Life massacre in a couple of days on October 28th. Right. We know that uh, the, the, uh, the white supremacist who had carried out the massacre was influenced by uh, extremist websites. He went on a, a social media outlet to, to basically declare his manifesto and declare his intentions. We know that there's a role uh, in, in social media outlets which fan the flames of hatred, which get people to, uh, to be incited to commit violence. Incredibly dangerous. Mike Fagelman is our guest uh, from Honest Reporting Canada on Global News Radio 640 Toronto. Um, education is so important. You, you mentioned as a parent of kids in school, I'm a parent of kids in school. I, I want them to learn the right way. We hear constantly and, and we hear it from a, a lot of distinct groups of different races, of different ethnicities, that bullying is worse, that there's more tension in schools. The TDSB just went through this five, six weeks ago, and, and I'm not sure I'm not sure it hasn't gotten worse over the last five or six weeks. So we hear that there's more anti-Semitism in schools. We hear that there's more reaction against Muslims in schools and, and especially in other provinces like Quebec there are. I mean, I get that it's it's a tightrope to teach school these days, and it probably is a real tightrope to teach history and social sciences. What can we do? Is there any sort of solution to this? Yeah, fundamentally, education and dialogue, there, there's no substitute for it. Um, listen, with the issue of the, the Texas administration that tried to push that, uh, that, that kind of uh, an objective, public opprobrium, naming and shaming and pushback is absolutely essential. And it's important to note that the school actually did walk back the claim of their administrator to, to kind of encourage mm. teachers to have that opposing discourse. But imagine had that not happened. Imagine uh, that uh, there, there wasn't that, that recording of that, uh, of that dialogue. Kids in Texas would have been taught that the Holocaust has two sides. 
So there needs to be more involvement. There's no question from from uh, people in the community and, and the public. Uh, but uh, but kids need to know that when they engage in anti-Semitism and hate, uh, whether with an intent to malign or whether they're not even just aware that the kind of comments that they're saying are incredibly painful, uh, they need mm-hmm. to know and be sensitized that it's totally inappropriate and it's painful. I got a minute here and I'm running late, but an important question for you. It's, you know, the Middle East in general, it's incredibly difficult to put into nuance, put into subtlety. It sure is really difficult on social media. Um, you and I might be able to have a beer or lunch and go deep into the topic, but it's hard in a format like this. I'll, get, I'll give you an example. When the violence and mayhem flares up in May and June, it's got layers of politics and centuries of history and and yeah, hatred and racism. I I did an interview a couple of weeks ago. It, it, it wasn't my best work. I let a couple of things go unchallenged. Um, and I, that's me. I need to be better and tighter. And I'm my own worst critic about that stuff. Is this harder than ever to discuss with subtlety and nuance because of where and how we get information? Yeah, like fundamentally, there's not a day that goes by that Israel is not villainized, that Israel is not vilified. It's the only liberal democracy in the Middle East. Uh, the Jewish state is is always in the media's crosshair, singled up for program and, and unfair and disproportionate censure. And, and whether it's by design or, or maybe because they're being manipulated by anti-Israel propaganda, uh, the world media delivers reports that are slanted against the state of Israel. So you've got uh, defensive military efforts that get cast as, as wars of aggression. Israel's claimed as a, a, as a colonial enterprise instead of having, you know, indigenous rights to the land. Is, Israeli uh, peace overtures are dismissed. Terrorism is ignored. Uh, you know, we, we don't hear about how in the yeah. conflict, the 10,000 rockets were fired at Israel and Israel didn't start the conflict. And its neighbor is a terrorist organization, Hamas, who is committed to its destruction. This is its backyard. This is his neighborhood. So unfortunately, in the world of news, everything is about what's new. We don't hear about the history, that this is a conflict that's gone on for many years. Israel desperately wants peace in the region. It's forged peace with five Arab countries in, in recently in the past year and a half with the Abraham Accords from Bahrain, UAE, Sudan, Morocco. It, it extends its hand for peace with the Palestinians. We, we need that reciprocity. We need that you know negotiated peace for, for leaders to sit down and forge a, a final status uh, resolution. I'm I'm happy to have these discussions. I I want to bring balance uh, to this topic. It it is a painful topic. It's been a painful topic for decades. It's it's there's no sign of it stopping. But the conversations are important. I'm I'm so tight for time. But thank you very much for coming on today. My absolute pleasure. Uh, Bruce Arthur joins me from the Toronto Star. Everybody, and by the way, I, I don't know who Bruce's nemesis is in the me. I have nemeses, uh, but uh, but obviously Newman was Jerry Seinfeld's nemesis. If people don't know who Newman is, you're a big Newman fan, uh, Bruce. You'd have to be, I think, at some point. Well, I mean, it's hard not to be a Newman. <laughs> I would say that uh, very, very honestly and earnestly. Oh, I have no nemeses in the media. There's nobody There's no who could populate that list. It certainly wouldn't take two pages. No. Do you remember the you remember the con like we would have been in college around the same time. You remember the con controversy about basic instinct. Then it's like this might just be another run of the mill, you know, erotic thriller. And the controversy was like Oh, we got to see this movie. We are going to see that. And it did massive. Michael Douglas, I guess, was a big star, but not many people knew who Sharon Stone even was. Yeah, it became one of those cultural flashpoint <laughs> movies. It's basically a victory of semi-cynical marketing, right? <laughs> Is that, oh my gosh, this 
what was it like a second and a half? Uh huh. Yeah. Isn't it, that's why I should go to a movie theater and sit in the movie theater and pay money to go to the movie theater and see this because clearly this is the only way this could ever happen, right? Like it was just it, some things managed to hit a chord because they're transgressive, and the problem we get in society now is what exactly is transgressive, right? Like it's yeah. really hard to go further than people are willing to accept. Especially when you get like in terms of like American politics, for example, everything is transgressive. Everything's insane to the point where it's just like everyone's working in a fireworks factory with really poor worker safety all the time. Yeah, there's that. Yeah. All, all, and in the midst of a global pandemic, my wife, who, you know, asked me that all the time because the kids want to go see movies and they're and she's like, is this restricted? Is this adult? To come? I'm like, I'm not even sure they have ratings anymore. I think we, we knew we knew when a movie would come out, we'd be like, is it AA? Can I go? Is it we tried to go to Fatal Attraction one night when we were like 15 and they're like, uh, get real. Like there's four of us. We got snot coming out of our nose. None of us could produce a driver's license. Like, of course, they're not letting us in on a Friday night. Of course, they're not. You clearly were not as good at sneaking into a movie theater as I was. Because <laughs> I at the movie theater, I can't remember even what it was. It was a Capital Six or something. Right on Vancouver's Main Street, people would come out the door. See, just walk in the doors and walk up the stairs. And next thing you know, you'd be watching movies for six hours. <laughs> so I'm supposed to ask to go see like three men and a little lady and then sneak into Basic Instinct <laughs> or, uh, or or Fatal Attraction. I figured this out now. Okay. Uh, I'm just supposed to. Uh, yeah. Uh, four for Bambi. But not that kind of Bambi, like four for the actual <laughs> animated Bambi. Fantastic. Um, all right. Like, I, I do want to address last night at, at Raptors. Uh, you've covered this team a long, long time. And and we're right back to kind of that conversation we had about the Leafs last week. Um, a lot of, you know, a lot of people are going to go and I think they're going to feel like I'm getting back what I lost. I, the irony is not lost on me that there would be people taking their kids eight or nine years old. I watched the game on TV. Not a lot of mask protocol, not a lot of mask protocol, but incredibly difficult to enforce right back where we were with the open air Blue Jays when we slowly tiptoed and reopened and said 15,000 people can come in. I mean, you know, you and I've been to many sports events. They're just they're not going to this is just how it's going to go, isn't it? And people are going to have to be okay with it. Uh, It's going to take some time. One thing is with the Jays and with certain outdoor the thing with the states is it's hard to tie big uh, outdoor events or big sporting events to their COVID rates because their COVID rates are ho- so high anyway, right? Yeah. Um, in, the, in Canada, we don't really have specific data showing what this does. And even if we haven't seen outbreaks from Jays games, which is fantastic, um, that's an outdoor situation, right? And so people haven't seen basically the, what, what happens when this happens. We just don't know. We don't know how much fraud there is in the vaccine passport system. We don't know how many breakthrough infections, like how well that's going to transfer in that arena. Um, it's still something that people are going to have to get used to. And then you get into the prices, right? Like MLSC, MLSC wants to get all the money back that they could over mm-hmm. the lot that they lost over the last two years. Everybody does. And so the prices are still the prices. And people are all of a sudden in a world where sports are not as essential. Maybe some people are looking at that that ticket price and going, do I need to spend this money? I'm not sure I need to spend this money. It's a, I, I worry it's a massive and, and I'm not, you know, Oh, Oh my gosh. You know, should we have a charity? Should Bob Geldof organize a charity concert for MLSC? <laughs> but Bruce, I worry, I, I looked at some, you know, $400, you know, mid court seats, 280 behind the net. And I'm going um, like DeMar comes back on October 25th playing for the bulls. I haven't seen that guy in a while. I haven't seen any basketball in a while. And I'm going, 
There's loads of tickets and they're all in the two, three, four, five hundred dollar range. I I just think we forgot what these kind of things cost before the pandemic. Well, I think this is going to be yet another example of we're, we're going to a lot of us are going to have to figure out how the world works again. Right. Yeah. How to live again, because for a lot of us, like as much as you kind of think I've managed to like for me, I think I've managed through this fine. Like, well, I've been really lucky. I have a lot of family, so I have a lot of people to talk to all the time. Uh, we have the luxury of outdoor space in our living situation. Like, it's been pretty easy. And even then, I went to a thing the other night full of fully vaccinated people, and it, it took a second to kind of remember how this works, right? I still was holding on to my mask and wearing my, I mean, the protocol was you wear your mask when you weren't eating or drinking. Mm. But it was, it was still different. And the, I found that with the Olympics, too. But we're going to have to figure that out is how, and there's two ways of looking at it. One is, how did we used to live? And can we get back to that? And two is, which parts of how we used to live do we want to go back to? And which ones don't we? And that's going to be really interesting because I don't think any of us have any idea exactly what the dynamics are going to be there. Uh, Bruce Arthur, our guest column is from the uh, Toronto Star. Um, this is just, um, I just think it's a really gross story, uh, but it's out there now. And, and I, I got wind of it over the weekend and, and now it's it's out there. One of the, one of our guests regularly on the show um, is is a travel editor, Natalie Preddy, and she's been, no, no other way to describe it, victimized uh, by Randy Hillier. She had a friend pass away. That friend's face is, was on Hillier's Instagram feed. And he put this madness out um, suggesting, um, you know, absolutely, you know, wrecking the emotional capacity of family and friends who've already lost a deceased relative or friend. And he suggested their deaths were related to the COVID-19 vaccine and they weren't. Again, you and me, a bunch of people in a room could debate lockdowns and this and that and schools and this and that. And then there's just stuff that's that's gross and vile and that's where this guy's gone and that's where he he you know henceforth shall remain and it just doesn't feel like anybody can do anything about it except ignore it and yet at the same time ignoring it he just keeps doing what he's doing i mean the voters of kingston lanark will be able to do it right when randy is up for re-election um this isn't just randy this is the hardcore anti-vax movement and i've described them in the past as feral and i think there is kind of a feral inhumanity to them and it's, it's really a scary thing to see up close. It's a scary thing to know that that's rolling around your society. In the absence of facts, and when you look at the, we talk about, we've talked about this before, we will keep talking about this because it's important. The, when you look at the vaccines and how they're affecting not just Canada, but the world, it's one of the great accomplishments in human history. Now, that doesn't mean that they're 100% perfect. There are all risks there, right? If you are under 30, the government says you probably shouldn't take Moderna because of a risk of myocarditis. Now, the myocarditis pretty much resolves itself, but... And the same with the blood clot issue with AstraZeneca. It was a very minor risk, a far lesser risk than if you, for example, got COVID. But in in the absence of this, in the absence of having actual arguments, actual facts, actual data, because the data on vaccines show these are overwhelmingly effective and safe. People like Randy Hillier create, willingly or not, I mean, I don't know how much of it is malice and how much of it is just idiocy. Um, they create their own data, right? Anecdotal data. And that's what this was. It was a whole lot of pictures mm-hmm. that show pictures of people who have actually, I believe, almost all of them, if not all of them, have died. 
mm-hmm. and saying this was because of the vaccine. No proof. Nothing except something you want to you want to be shared among gullible Facebook users. And it's disgusting because there are real people in those pictures. And this is where the people who are anti-vaccine are fundamentally anti-society. They are fundamentally pro-individual. I mean, we're talking about the hardcore ones, not the ones who just have doubts. Doubts is different. You can, you're, it's, some people just don't believe in it as much as they should. They've been underserved by the system. Fine. Um, but the hardcore ones, they're just not someone you'd ever want to share an elevator with for five minutes, right? Like, they're just, they're, there's a real nastiness to it. A real inhumanity, and that's what I saw out of Randy Hillier in that, and in a number of other things that he continues to do. Like if you told, if I told you when this got going, we'd have a politician who got elected fair and square, regardless of party and background, and he tweet out pictures comparing our public health measures. Again, criticize them, debate them. Absolutely, that's fair. Comparing them to the Holocaust, like I get shudders from that. So when I hear from my Jewish friends who. The impact it has on them is scarring, and I I never thought I'd see it. I never thought we'd get to that point where we can disagree and we can get loud, but that that would happen in Ontario in the 21st century. That idea that here is a vaccine which will protect you from the most devastating virus we've seen in 100 years on the planet, and people say this is totalitarianism, tells you that people have fundamentally broken information systems when you think that way, right? Like your inability to comprehend reality and the world, your unwillingness to engage with it. And maybe some of it is contrarianism. Maybe some of it is just, uh, just brain poisoning. Like we've seen a lot, the more you see, the more you look at how certain people, especially on the right, how they interpret the world. It's just, it's, it's an unwillingness to kind of, deal with reality, right? It's your own cinematic universe. And that's what anti-vaxxers are. And again, I'm not saying that there are zero health risks because nothing has zero health risks. I talked to a drug researcher yesterday who said if, if they invented Tylenol yesterday, they'd probably ban it tomorrow. Oh, God. Yeah, yeah. Tylenol is not that much higher than the amount that they prescribe you, right? Like it's something that can be used really dangerously. Mm. The vaccines in the context of everything we do in terms of risk, in terms of driving, in terms of scuba diving, in terms of getting COVID are so much safer. And so that's where you get this. This stuff is really that that ahistorical idiocy of, of the idea that this is like the Holocaust. Try to square that oh. with actual data. We're like we're three billion people in the world have been given vaccines. Right. Like yeah. you just have to have a broken brain to do that. And what's really scary about this, I don't know what the exact number of hardcore anti-vaxxers are in this province, for example. Let's say it's 6%, right? Let's say it's as high as 10%. 10% is 1.4 million people, right? And yeah, that, yeah. that is a scary thing to have walking around in our society. Yeah, I, I, I've said this a million times. We needed this pandemic in... 1981, not 2021. We needed this before the internet. Um, this is not good that we, we, you know, and again, it would have wrecked our childhoods uh, <laughs> for a couple of years, but I, you know, uh, we'd have come out of it a lot cleaner and a lot less broken, as you put it, the other way around. I got to roll. Thanks very much for the time. Have a great weekend. Brady, you too, man. Megan Trainer's got something that uh, is sort of out there that people are thinking about, Sheba. 
Well, we all know who Megan Trainer is. She's a phenomenal singer, and she was on The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon last week, and she revealed the favorite part of her new home with her husband, Daryl Sabera. Her favorite part is they built two <laughs> toilets side by side in their master bathroom um, where they can poop and pee together. Gentlemen, is this something you would ever do? Dave, uh, my mic's uh, not working right now, so I didn't hear the question. Why don't you go and have a, I'm getting no. some technical difficulty right no, now. No, uh, I would never do. This is ridiculous. Who would want it? I, yeah, I can. I, there's another bathroom downstairs at my house. If it's that bad, then I'm like, oh, I'm going to go downstairs while you're up. There's no way I'm, I'm going to, hey, just uh, slide on over there. I'm going to. But this just, is their way of connecting with each no, other, right? He, she finds it. So you can connect in other ways. Yeah, I mean, everyone, <laughs> everyone has door. their thing. I get it. Everyone has their thing. But I second Dave's motion. They, and they say, listen, th- I think it's worth clarifying. They go number one a lot at the same time, which is fine. The number two is a bit of a, a bridge that I think people won't want to cross with both but people she, sitting at the same time. But she has. She has. A couple yes, times. But is oh, that by accident? You're like, oh, my gosh, ah. you're in here. It's like It's like when you... I've gone into the corporate setting and all of a sudden walked in and, and there's like the big boss, the, not my boss, but my boss's boss's <laughs> boss peeing. And I'm like, oh, God, That's I, awkward. I, am I making conversation? I know who he is. I think he knows. I know he knows who I am, too. So is there chit chat? What are we doing? He might be <laughs> finishing. Has he started? All those things are guy things, right? That are very, very awkward. You guys get your own stalls, Sheba. Like we, we don't. Do. We've got to mix with the common the common urinators. It's not but great. But I've heard the protocol is you just say hi, then you ignore each other. Is that correct? It's <laughs> pretty clear, yeah. I, uh, I, I think it's a lot like that scene in Planes, Trains, and Automobiles when uh, John, you know, John Candy has his hand in what he thinks is between two pillows. But they're not. <laughs> and they wake up and they're kind of like, oh, how about that Bears game? Like they don't. It's uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah, totally. And, and um, you go in, sometimes you go in the men's bathroom. This has become a public bathroom story, and the stall doesn't close all the way, and you're like, it's the only one, yeah. and I'm here, and it's time. It's time to do some business. That's true. Time to make a transaction, well, and, so, the, and the door so is do like open. So you put your hand on? So are you like holding one hand up? You just kind of to are. Sure? Yeah, That's you kind so of are. That's so awkward. It's so awkward. To be clear, though, this this Megan Trainer having two toilets in her bathroom side by side, there's no divider between the two. This None. is not like a case of a of a stall being put in your own personal bathroom so you can have access to two toilets. No, no, this is like wide open. You can use the other one as, as a... A side table, if you want, for your magazine. <laughs> you can. You can do that. They, they come in handy that way. Now, Dave, are you a bath guy? Do you take baths? I'm a nah, big bath guy. I'm you don't bathe. Guy. You don't bathe. I'm a full-on shower You're guy. a full-on yeah. FOS guy. I bathe, and I and my. but when my <laughs> wife takes a bath, Sheba, I know she's in there, and I know I'm not coming in. But my wife will burst. Uh, did you pay the electric bill? Like, And she's just standing there, and I'm like, I'm just kind of soaping and, and wallowing in my own filth, uh, you know, mentally and otherwise. Like what's this, I, she doesn't offer me the same cur- I'm looking for equality in life. Where is I, it? When oh, will men right. get it? Then lock the door. Try doing that. <laughs> Try doing what she does and lock the door. I don't so think I, I don't think spouses lock the door on each other. Oh, I totally no. I, I don't do think you do that. No, there's needs to be some mystery. Like I, I still, <laughs> if we're like, I will still turn on the tap when I have to pee. And I've been married for 15 years. There needs to be some mystery. I will never go to the bathroom. The trickling time. sound is a problem. It, what is yes. it? Echo throughout the household? Uh, you got mar- marble walls, and it e- <laughs> the sound echoes off them. No, there has to be some mystery around it. The international travel vaccine passport gets introduced by the federal government today. We've been 
waiting a while for this, but I'm not sure there's been a sense of urgency because we just haven't been able to travel via land. It hasn't been a convenient thing to uh, tuck onto our phones in terms of an app. We had the Arrive Can app. I swear I deleted that about two weeks ago because I wasn't going anywhere. And you remember the famous, um, you know, COVID alert app. I probably deleted that after my first vaccination. I mean, that thing was a flop. It, it was a flop. Sometimes stuff gets introduced. Apple's had flops. Okay. Uh, Google's had flops. Uh, ESPN in the States tried to create a phone for sports fans. Nobody wanted it. It was a disaster. It, it was new Coke. Um, so you're going to have, you're going to have your misses, if you will, once in a while. And the COVID app was a total flop. This thing won't be because people will utilize it and need it. So I'm going to get there in a couple minutes. Yesterday in the city of Toronto, um, it was a briefing from the mayor, John Tory, and the chief medical officer uh, of the city of Toronto, uh, Dr. Eileen Devilla. Okay, so they were talking about vaccinations a fair bit. And uh, look, there's a couple things happening here in the city, and some of it ties into where I'm going to go again at 8 o'clock this morning and me talking about masks yesterday on the show and, and just wanting and I think needing at a certain point in time um, an off-ramp. And I think we're we're asking more and more and more for that is to say, where are we going? What happens when we get there? We know that the goal is get as many people vaccinated as possible. Gotcha. I'm with you. I'm all for it. Make no mistake. I'm all for it. Okay. Uh, Wanting your kid not to wear a mask indefinitely doesn't make you some kind of a cretin. It sure doesn't make you selfish. I push back hard on that kind of stuff. Because I don't tell anybody else how to parent or what they should want for their kids. Some people want their kids to go to overnight camp. Some people don't. Some people want their kids delivering newspapers. Some people don't. Everybody is different. I'd never tell you what to want uh, for your kids except love them, respect them, challenge them. Do a little bit of challenging uh, of them once in a while. And I'm I'm honestly at a loss because I, I'm conflicted. I agree with what the city wants to do here. I'm just really surprised that it seems to be almost an obsession. And I'm not talking about getting vaccinated, period. Here's where we're at. I want you to know this in the city of Toronto right now. Uh, The last number I saw, and it was about 4 o'clock last night, was 87% of Torontonians have their first dose. 82.8% of eligible Torontonians are fully vaccinated. So it's really close. Those numbers are a lot closer than they used to be. 87 first dose, almost 83% fully vaccinated. And uh, I know that the goal is 90% fully vaccinated. Um, If I told you that we're creeping up 1% about every five and a half weeks, what does that tell you? Well, we're 7% away. If I did the math, and by the way, it's easier to get from, you You would know this if you ran a marathon. I don't run marathons, okay? My knees are bad. Don't look at me like that. But mile two to three, it's easier than mile 21 to 22. Mile nine to 10 is easier than mile 19 to 20. You get where I'm going. It was much easier to build up a quick crescendo of our percentage, you know, in the province, in, in the city, in uh, on your street than it is to cross those last miles off, to cross those last numbers off, okay? That's just mathematics. That's human nature and behavior, and it's also mathematics. So even if I told you that the last couple percentages, 
Okay, going 79 to 80. I went and did this yesterday afternoon. I spent time on this. Trust me. 79 to 80, 80 to 81, 81 to 82. Those took about an average of five weeks. Um, we're going to be, if, if we're going to get to 90% fully vaccinated, and I get that there will be a flood potentially with the 5 to 11s. I get that. But if there isn't, we're talking about five to six weeks to move a percentage point. Um, that's about 42 weeks. <laughs> Are you ready? For, and and I, I hate to break the news. 42 weeks from now is like, you know, August of 2022. Are we serious? You cannot be serious that we're talking about 40 to 42 weeks of getting to 90%. You might say, hey, that's a worst case scenario. But it's the actual mathematical scenario that's played out over the last few climbs of percentage. And maybe it's worth asking at a certain point in time, what happens when we get to 90%? Because here's my point. And it's a good one. I know it is. 90% is a benchmark. Sure it is. Okay. That said, not knowing what happens when we get there is really problematic for some people and it may be exactly what's making people say why would i do it what happens when i get there this was the problem we had early on when we hit a one dose wall as many of us predicted in the summer we hit a one dose wall around middle of june early july i remember it the euros were on canada day kids out of school we hit a wall for people going and getting their first vaccines the people who wanted were crawling all, all over each other to get it in April and May. Of course we were. And then we get to June and July and we realize, oh, not everybody, not everybody's as exuberant about it as I am or you are. We're only at 82.8%. I mean, it's great. And guess what? A huge reason why we're not seeing Delta penetrate our communities is how vaccinated we are. We are very vaccinated. We know how to risk mitigate. But Toronto also, the entire way through the pandemic, you have looked at the city of Toronto and said, why don't you guys open up? What's going on? Why is this closed? Why is that closed up? How come our sports teams aren't even around? You guys cost the Blue Jays a playoff spot. And that's true. That's true. If the Jays come home two weeks earlier, they're in the playoffs. I, I, don't, hear, I don't hear any other argument but that. Everything else is just white noise, black noise, red noise, yellow noise. To me, it's just noise. It's true. They come back two weeks earlier, they're in the playoffs. They needed two more wins, they would have got it. They were getting beat up in uh, Florida and Buffalo. They were amazing when they got back here and got to play in front of us. But we don't know what we get when we get to 90%. And the 5 to 11s, I find this really, really intriguing. Yesterday, yesterday, uh, doctor, uh, let, let's go with the clip one. John Tory, the mayor of Toronto, and I understand this, but I'm also like, why is this? why are we hearing about this now? Only for 5 to 11s. Why is there more of a sense of urgency now? I have a theory about it. But this, this urgency wasn't here. Listen to the urgency of getting 5 to 11s vaccinated, which probably isn't even going to happen for another five or six weeks. Long before there was even any prospect of this happening soon, we started to do the work and started to get ready. And we're doing everything as a, as a city that we can to be ready at the time that uh, this is approved by Health Canada. Helping young children get vaccinated as quickly as possible will make sure they have the best protection possible against COVID-19, help to keep our schools safe and open uh, to in-class learning.
Okay, I believe that. I believe all of that. I think it's the smart thing to do. I would get a six-year-old vaccinated the, the first day that they were eligible. I absolutely would do that. I also understand every parent is going to do that. I, I understand that. I'm not going to push you on that. I am really conflicted about a vaccine mandate that's going to keep a grade one out of, out, of a, out of a classroom right now. I really am. I think we should make the vaccines optional for that age group. I lean in that direction, but I can be swayed. Like, I don't have a hard and fast opinion on this or a quote-unquote hot take on this. Um, if you're that nervous, if you're, if you're that nervous, even if everybody in the school is vaccinated and you know your educators are, we have had an uptake of about 93% with most boards. I mean, I believe almost every, every teacher is vaccinated. Then maybe you're better off doing online schooling until you're ready to join the rest of us. Maybe you are. Maybe you will send your six-year-old to school with a mask on every day for the next half decade. I don't know. I'm not going to tell you not to. But you're not going to tell me to keep a mask on my kid for the next five years, all the way through high school. That ain't going to happen. That's never going to happen. So stop dreaming it's going to. Dr. Eileen Davila laid this out yesterday as well about the 5 to 11s. It's a plea. It's a, it's a, it's a logical plea. I agree with the sentiment, but I think some people in the city are asking, What's the urgency here where there was an urgency before? Here's Dr. Davila. We are considering the best locations to deliver the vaccines across the city. This may include mass immunization clinics, community-based clinics, and school-based clinics, in addition to delivery through pharmacies and doctor's offices. Okay, yeah, all that's true. Guess what? I can think of a great place that you could have vaccinated 12-plus. I'm trying to think of somewhere where kids go five days a week and they're there seven days uh, and they're said there's seven hours a day and they kind of go Monday to Friday. I don't think they go Saturday. Oh, yeah, I know what it is at schools. And we haven't done that. Are there vaccine clinics at schools that I'm unaware of? If so, l- let me know, because that's not what I hear from parents. It sure isn't what I hear from teachers. So what's the urgency? This city, I, I, John Tory's like, we got to we got to be ready. And we've been doing the work to be ready on this. Well, well you weren't ready to, to advocate for 12 plus to get vaccinated. I didn't hear any of that. You weren't ready to mandate it for for city employees. We weren't ready to get masks on people it was one of the last jurisdictions to do it last summer. So what's the urgency on this front? Is it to get to 90 percent? And if so, I'll ask again, what happens when you get there? What's the goal here? This is where we're at, everybody. Confusion, disagreement, scientists disagree, non-experts like myself disagree. What's the goal? Does it conflict with any other goal? And why are so many things undefined? What are we trying to achieve in Canada, Ontario, City of Toronto? Are we trying to get to zero infections before dropping restrictions? You know we can't, right? We do understand that. Are we going to make the virus like the seasonal flu? Okay, then there's a different set of policies to be involved. But let's talk about goals, not just let's get to 90%. What happens when we get there? I don't know. Well, you should. You've made the goal. And this isn't about masks or boosters. This is just about unstated objectives. Thanks for listening to the Toronto Today podcast. We will have a live show back tomorrow to wrap the week Friday morning between 5.30 and 9. Find us there. Please feel to rate. Feel free to rate this podcast. Subscribe to the podcast if you aren't already. Many of you have, and we appreciate that. Thanks very much.